So, a warm welcome to everybody to the uh, fourth meeting this academic year of the Aristotelian Society. Um, it's a very great pleasure for me to introduce Pauline Sliver from Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge. Um, Pauline studied physics and philosophy as an undergraduate, that was in Oxford, and then she did postgraduate work at MIT where she received her doctorate. Her interests range very widely, but they include epistemology, ethics, and moral psychology, and the various ways in which these relate to one another. And I think that's something that will be evidenced in the paper that she's going to give this evening, which is entitled Understanding and Knowing. Um, before I actually hand over to Pauline, a reminder of the format. Uh, Pauline will speak for maybe 40 minutes or so, um, and then we will have a brief break for uh, tea and coffee, and then we will resume for the question and answer session, aiming to finish by about 7.15. So without further ado, um, over to Pauline. Thank you very much everyone for coming, and it's quite an honor to be here. So um, my talk is going to be about the relationship between understanding and knowing. So quite recently, um, there's been a trend in epistemology where people have become very interested in the notion of understanding. And quite a number of people have argued that, in fact, traditional epistemology has made this terrible, terrible mistake by focusing on, on knowledge only. And um, there's this really important notion of understanding that's completely understudied, and we need to recover that, and we need to come up with, a, with, its, with kind of an own, an, its own account, um, with, with, a, with a distinct account of understanding. So my aim in this paper is going to kind of challenge that trend. So um, contrary to what a lot of people recently have argued, um, I think knowledge is a lot, has a lot more going for it than, than people realize. And uh, I'm going to be arguing that, in fact, understanding can be fully cashed out in terms of knowledge. So we shouldn't be postulating this distinct cognitive state. Okay, so let me just do some setup first. So... Um, I'm going to be distinguishing between reductionists and non-reductionists about understanding. So I take non-reductionism to, to be the view that knowing and understanding are distinct cognitive states. Right? So we have a different mental state knowing, and we have a different state mental state understanding, and these kind of differ in, in systematic ways. Um, and I take reductionism to be the opposite view. So according to reductionism, knowledge is all there is to understanding. And now we need to be a little bit disciplined as to what exactly we're referring to when we're talking about understanding and knowledge and knowing um, because um, we need to distinguish between, on the one hand, instances of understanding and on the other hand, kind of understanding of a domain where it's understood as a capacity. So um, instances of understanding are, 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 examples of instances of understanding are kind of the following. I understand why the plane crashed, or I understand what to do when the fire alarm sounds. So these are quite specific kind of instances of understanding. And I want to contrast this with kind of a general use of understanding as a capacity. So sometimes we might say, you know, the physicist really understands quantum mechanics, or um, the surgeon understands medicine, or really understands anatomy or something like this. So in those cases, we are attributing to, to agents um, kind of understanding of a domain. So 
when I'm referring to reductionism and non-reductionism, I'm going to be speaking about um, instances of understanding. So I take non-reductionism to be the view that uh, for any inst so instances of understanding are distinct from instances of knowing. So there's something knowing why the plane crashed and understanding why the plane crashed are kind of two different mental states. And I take to be reductionism to be the opposite view. So according to reductionism, um, all there is to understanding why the plane crashed just is knowing why the plane crashed. Like, once God gave you knowledge, there was nothing more she needed to do in order for you to understand uh, why the plane crashed. Okay, so um, one way to kind of set out the debate between reductionism and non-reductionism is to look at specific claims that the reductionist denies and the non-reductionist um, accepts. Sorry, the other way around, that the um, reductionist accepts and the non-reductionist denies. So I've put some of these on your handout at the very beginning. So, for example, an agent understands YP if and only if she knows YP. An agent understands what happened if and only if she knows what happened. An agent understands that P if and only if she knows that P. So, a reductionist, since a reductionist believes that there's nothing more to understanding, to instances of understanding than instances of knowing, she's going to be accepting all of these claims. According to, view, to her view, knowing, instances of knowing are necessary and sufficient for understanding. And a non-reductionist is going to deny at least one of these claims. And in fact, if you look into the kind of blossoming literature on non-reductionist, people differ in what they reject. So um, almost everyone uh, rejects the sufficiency claim. So Alice, examples include Alison Hills, Michael Stravens, um, uh, Grimm. A lot of people reject the claim that once you know YP, you thereby understand YP. The other direction, the necessity claim, is a little bit, that's a little bit more up for grabs. So some non-reductionists accept it, but, uh, sorry, some non-reductionists accept that knowledge is necessary for understanding, but a lot, a lot of them, like uh, Kwanbik, for example, have denied that, um, that knowing is even necessary for understanding. Okay, so I'm, since I'm defending the reductionist view, um, I think that knowing instances of knowledge are both necessary and sufficient for the corresponding instance of understanding. And since talk of instances is very, very cumbersome, I'm going to just drop it from now on, and I'm just going to be talking about knowing and understanding, and unless I say otherwise, uh, it should be understood that I'm referring to specific instances. Okay, so, um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start out by uh, arguing that knowledge is necessary for understanding. I'm going to look at a particular argument that non-reductionists make to the effect that it's not, and I'm going to argue that that argument fails and that there's a good argument on the reductionist side for thinking that knowledge is necessary for understanding. And then I'm going to look at the sufficiency claim. And there again, I'm going to look at the kind of main argument that non-reductionists put forward. There's, there's actually one central argument that's made by almost everyone in the understanding literature. And again, I'm going to argue that that argument fails and that the reductionist has kind of a good story to tell as to why, if insofar as it seems plausible that that knowledge might not be sufficient for understanding, why that is so. And towards the very end, then, I'm going to sketch 
fill in a little bit more about the um, reductionist view, and I'm going to kind of go through some considerations why, um, why we might favor reductionism over non-reductionism on independent grounds. Okay, so that's the plan. All right, so let's start with, um, with the necessity claim. So according to the reductionist, knowledge is necessary for understanding. So that's a view that a lot of, that quite a number of non-reductionists have challenged. I've mentioned Kvanvik as one of them. Alison Hills is another one who, um, who has challenged this claim. So I think it's going to be helpful to first look at the kinds of cases that non-reductionists put forward. So why they think that the necessity claim is something that we should reject. So the kinds of cases that they appeal um, are cases of epistemic luck. So I've put the case on your handout. Um, journals. So Jane is a surgeon who picks up a scientific journal from a stack and reads an article about a novel therapy against hepatitis B. She learns that the medication is highly effective, much more so than the, than the established therapies, and this is so because it targets a particular protein of the virus. As it turns out, the journal she picked up was kind of the only accurate one in the stack. So all the other journals in the stack had misleading information in it. And had Jane picked up any of those others, she would have come to believe that the therapy um, was no better than the established alternatives. Right? So this case is mine, but kind of versions of these cases um, are present in, in kind of all over, all over the place in the non-reductionist uh, literature. So in effect, here's what I take to be the non-reductionist's argument. Um, so premise one, because of epistemic luck, Jane does not know why the novel therapy is highly effective. Premise two, intuitively, Jane understands why the novel therapy is highly effective. So therefore, knowing why P is not necessary for understanding why P. Right? Okay, so, so these are the kind of epistemic luck cases that, that are at issue. Okay, so... I don't think that, so I don't think that the argument works. I think it's unsound. But what I first want to do is I want to give you an argument, an independent argument in support of reductionism that's going to show that something must be wrong with the argument I just put forward. And then I'm going to go back and look at which particular premise we should be rejecting. Okay, so um, here's why there must, here's one reason to think that there is something off about the conclusion that the non-reductionist asks us to draw. Okay, so take a step back from what the non-reductionist is trying to do. Okay, so the, the non-reductionist is not, the project is not to introduce this new theoretical entity that's kind of theoretically motivated, understanding, and then give an account for it. Right? The non-reductionist thinks that Understanding is this really important concept that we kind of employ in our everyday theorizing and also in, in, in theorizing about science all the time, um, and that has been overlooked by traditional epistemology. So they kind of take themselves to be giving an account of something that's already there and that's kind of already, already we ha already have a firm pre-theoretical grip on. And they think that kind of intuitions are on their side, that this concept is different from the concept of knowledge. And they think that epistemic luck cases are kind of the one kind of genre of cases that brings that out really nicely. Okay, so I think that there's reason to doubt 
the non-reductionists claim that there really are these two distinct notions in our kind of common sense understanding that we have pre-theoretical grip on. And one reason to doubt this is that if it really was true that there are these distinct things that we have that just common sense tells us there are, and that are like uh, anchored in our, in, our, in our kind of everyday epistemic theorizing, then I think this is something that we should be expecting to surface when we look at the semantics of knowing and understanding, right? So that's something, at least kind of the, the semantics provide some evidence as to, as to whether or not um, these things are, should, whether, we should, whether we, should, we should expect these things to be really distinct. And here I think that um, the, as, as the case is, uh, it favors reductionism. Okay, so here's why. Just consider the following sentences. Jane understands why the medication is effective, but she does not know why it's effective. Or uh, Jane understands that the new medication is effective, but she doesn't know that it's effective. Or Jane understands what the most effective therapy is, but she does not know what the most effective therapy is. And we can kind of generate these cases. So, all of these sentences, they seem to be something really off about them. They seem to be infelicitous. Okay, but if we take the non-reductionist claim seriously, then this is really puzzling. Like, if there really are these two distinct notions, and epistemic luck cases just are one way of bringing out that they're distinct, then we would, kind of, we would expect this to show up in, um, in, kind of our, in, in our semantics of knowing and understanding. But as it is, it seems like um, the semantics suggests that understanding and knowing cannot come apart in the way that non-reductionist suggests. Okay, so here's one suggestion that you might, here's one um, suggestion you might have on behalf of the non-reductionist. You might say, well, couldn't this be just a pragmatic issue? So yeah, there's something off about these sentences, but that's just because it would take for, like, it's, it's weird it's, it's a weird scenario, or there's some pragmatic presupposition that in most cases an agent knows when she understands. Okay, so I don't think that's going to work, because there are good reasons to think that insofar as these sentences are infelicitous, the defect here is not just pragmatic, it's in fact semantic. So one way to bring this out is that if it were merely pragmatic, then we would expect there to be some kind of embedding of these sentences in which we can make them come out all right. Right, so um, the, um, the example case here is if you take the Murian sentence, it's raining, but I don't know that it's raining. That's also infelicitous, right? But here, um, people have argued this is just a pragmatic issue, and one way to show that it's a pragmatic issue is that we can embed the sentence and make it come out all right. So if I say, if it's raining, but I don't know that it's raining, then there's something I don't know. Okay, perfectly good sentence, perfectly felicitous. So it doesn't look like we can do the analogous thing in the case of the sentences I've given you on the handout. If I say, if Jane understands what the most effective therapy is, but she doesn't know what the effective therapy is, then there's something that she doesn't know. That doesn't sound any better than the original sentence that we started out with. 
Okay, so that suggests that it's not just pragmatics that are going wrong here. It really, in so far as these sentences are defective, they really are semantically defective. They sound, they sound infelicitous because they assert something contradictory. Um, and that suggests that, at least kind of on the common sense, understanding, understanding entails knowing, right? So this is at least the linguistic datum that favors reductionism. And I think insofar as, so I think it favors, so the linguistic datum itself favors reductionism. And I think it favors reductionism, particularly against the background of what non-reductionism is trying to do, which is trying to convince us that they're just, they're just making precise and theorizing a distinction that is kind of there already in our theorizing. Right? So that's, I take it, this is something, that's, that's a reason to be skeptical about the non-reductionist argument that I've given you above and about kind of the non-reductionist claim that knowing is not necessary for understanding. Okay, so as far as this is an argument for reductionism, of course, it's just, it, it, hasn't, it doesn't show us yet what goes wrong with the epistemic luck case. Um, so where, where should we get off the board? So here's where I think we should get off the board. I think we should, I think we should reject premise one. I don't think that's the only way the reductionist can go, but that is, that is my favorite. That's my favorite way of going. Okay, um, and here's one way of um, seeing that that's, um, that that's the right way of going. All right, so let's see, so I, one, okay. So why should we reject premise one? Okay, here's why. Um, according to the, so one way in which the, um, the non-reductionist might kind of challenge the linguistic argument I've just set out is by saying, well, you know, okay, linguistic data is on, is, favors reductionism, but that's really just because like these epistemic luck cases are pretty rare. So, you know, in general, we can infer from, from the assertion that someone understands YP, that they know YP, it's just in these kind of ecologically rare cases that things go wrong, and so it's not surprising that our kind of linguistic practice doesn't, doesn't accommodate these very rare ecological cases, ecologically rare cases. Okay, so the problem with this, and I think, and, and that shows why we should reject premise one, is that cases like the one um, that non-reductionists non point to, the epistemic luck cases, are decidedly not ecologically rare, right? This is one way of looking at it is just have a look at what the kind of epistemic luck at issue is. The epistemic luck at issue here is someone who is lucky to acquire non-misleading information about a certain subject matter, in this particular case about uh, medical treatments. And so she's lucky to, uh, to have non-misleading evidence when she could have quite easily have had misleading evidence. But if you just step back and think about, about this for a moment, it should, it should be clear that this is an epistemic predicament that we find ourselves in all the time, right? So here's just an example. Take, uh, take the detective, the police detective, who kind of is looking through the crime scene and she's collected all this evidence that points to Jones as a murderer and she's building her case and then she's kind of, she decides on a whim to just look one last time through the crime scene. And just as she looks, there's this ray of light from the setting sun that happens to illuminate this like crucial thing, maybe a hair that, that she happens to see. 
Um, and once she analyzes the hair, it turns out that it's in fact, it's, it's Smith who's the murderer, not Jones. Okay, so the police detective here is really, really lucky to have acquired non-misleading information, non-misleading evidence. Um, she could have just as easily rested with the misleading evidence she had, which pointed to, to the other guy. Um, I don't think we would want to deny that the police detective has knowledge. What we would like to say is, well, they're really, really lucky to have found out who the murderer was. They're lucky to know, right? So that suggests that kind of being lucky to acquire non-misleading evidence um, doesn't undermine knowledge claims, contrary to the one, what the non-reductionist claims. And in fact, kind of insisting that they do, that this kind of epistemic luck, lucky to have luck, being lucky to have non-misleading evidence is incompatible with knowledge. It's really problematic because it, will thre it threatens quite a lot of our kind of ordinary knowledge attributions. Um, okay, so that's one reason, I think, why we should reject premise one of the non-reductionist non argument. Um, okay, so I'm just going to go ahead. I think there's, there's obviously there's a lot, there are a lot more subtleties here um, with respect to the epistemic luck that I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A. I'm also going to flag that I don't think that um, rejecting premise one is in fact the only way to go for the reductionist. I think the reductionist can also make a pretty good case for rejecting premise two and um, debunking our intuitions to the contrary if that's the way she was inclined, if she wanted to take seriously um, the, the, the claim that epistemic luck is incompatible with knowledge. But in either case, I think there's, we have an independent case for reductionism, kind of the linguistic data, and I think the reductionist has a good response to um, the epistemic luck argument that the non-reductionist puts forward. All right, so, so, far, so, so far so good as far as the necessity claim is concerned. So, um, Let's move on to whether or not knowledge is sufficient for understanding, and that's the more controversial claim. Okay, so I'm going to start with the question: Why think why think that it's not sufficient, right? And there, um, if you look again through the kind of non-reductionist literature, virtually everyone has the same case. It's always a case involving testimony. So I've put one kind of version of this case on the handout. That's due to Duncan Pritchard, but kind of analogous cases abound. So um, the case, I call the case faulty wiring. So here's, um, actually this is, um, this should have, um, this is a quotation from Pritchard. Um, the handout should reflect that. Okay, so suppose that I understand why my house burned down, I know why it burned down, and also I know that it burned down because of faulty wiring, okay? Imagine further that my young son asks me why his house burned down, and I tell him, he has no conception of how faulty wiring might cause a fire, so we could hardly imagine that merely knowing this much suffices to afford him understanding of why his house burned down. Nevertheless, he surely does know that his house burned down because of faulty wiring, and thus also knows why his house burned down. Right, so these are, this is a case of testimony, and the thought is, well, um, the thought, I guess the underlying thought is, Knowing, knowledge, in comparison to understanding, knowledge is pretty cheap. Like you can come to know by testimony, but it's not that easy to come to understand. And these kind of testimonial cases are supposed to, are supposed to bring this out. Um, and just to give you kind of a flavor of the, of the, um, 
of the, argu of, of the argument as it's being made. So here's another quote from Strevens from a forthcoming paper. Um, he says, these testimonial cases show that the sort of grasping needed for understanding requires a more intimate acquaintance with the structure of, of the explanation than sometimes accompanies mere knowledge. It is not enough to know that one or more parts of or conditions for a correct explanation hold. Their holding must be directly mentally apprehended. Okay, so there's, there's a whole lot of other people who make this point. The basic point is like knowing is knowledge is cheap. Understanding requires something more. So what is this more? It's some kind of grasp of the explanation or Grimm um, says it's seeing how the different parts of the relations relate to each other. Um, Kranvik puts things in similar terms, so there's, but there's supposed to be something cognitively more going on in the case of understanding, and then kind of the challenge for the reductionist, for the non-reductionist, is to spell out what exactly that more involves. Okay, so um, what I I want to question the argument from testimony. I think these cases shouldn't lead us. Um, to think that there's something more to, under, to instances of understanding than, than knowledge. Um, and in order to do so, I think it will, it will really help to have the argument set out in kind of really nice, clear premise, of conclusion for, premise and conclusion form. So that's what I did on, on the handout, if you turn it around. Um, so, okay, so I'll just give you the argument. So premise one, in cases like faulty wiring, parent and child both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring. Then premise two, if parent and child both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring, they have the same propositional knowledge about why the house burned down. Premise three, if they have the same propositional knowledge about why the house burned down, then both know why the house burned down Premise four, nevertheless, there's an epistemic asymmetry between the two agent. The parent understands why the house burned down and the child does not. And so, because it cannot be explained in terms of um, the parents and the child's knowledge, um, we should conclude that kind of the, the, the asymmetry should be explained by a difference in understanding. And so, kind of mere knowing why the house burned down cannot be sufficient for understanding why the house burned down. Okay, so that's the argument. So the reason why um, I set it out in this way is um, there's some tricky issues here about, so I said the reductionist cases, instances of understanding kind of reduced to the corresponding instances of knowledge. So understanding why P reduces to knowing why P. Um, there's, there's kind of a separate question here about um, whether they also reduce to propositional knowledge. So kind of in a lot of the literature, um, uh, the, a lot of non-reductionists are unhappy with reductionism precisely because they think that um, understanding cannot be reduced to propositional knowledge. So I just wanted to kind of make the two steps, um, make the two steps distinct in the, highlight the, the steps from um, instances to understanding to instances of knowledge and from instances of knowledge to propositional knowledge, kind of uh, make this explicit in the argument. All right, so what, what could we do? So I think the, so here's, so, so leading on from, from this, one way in which the, the reductionist could go about is they could just reject premise three. So they could reject that um, sameness of propositional knowledge entails that both agents know why the house burned down. Kind of that, a lot of people might want to make this move. Actually, Grimm wants to make this move, so they think that there's the special knowledge, knowledge why, um, that doesn't reduce to propositional knowledge. Um, that would be that kind of that's one, one line of defense that you could go down. That's not what I'm going to do. 
So I'm going to target premise two. So according to premise two, if parent and child both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring, um, then they both have the same propositional knowledge about why the house burned down. Okay? So that's the premise that I think um, we should reject. Okay, so why should we reject that? Okay, so first of all, I think we should grant that parent and child both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring. Okay, so they, they, both, they both know that. Okay, so, but what exactly, so what exactly does it mean that they both know that the house um, burned down because of faulty wiring? Well, here's kind of one way to, to think about the, this proposition of knowledge. We could think that they both divide, a range, they, both divide, they both discriminate between a range of alternative possibilities, right? alternative hypotheses about why the house might have burned down. Um, and then once um, they learn, they both learn that, that it was faulty wiring, they kind of both locate the actual world in that space of possibilities on the kind of right side of the divide, right? So they kind of both discard certain hypotheses that are false and kind of locate the world within, um, on the right kind of side of the, um, they, they both kind of accept the right hypothesis. Okay, but um, while both parent and child discriminate between a range of alternative possibilities, of course, it's like they, they know different things coming in. And so while there is some overlap between the epistemic possibilities that they discriminate between, there's also quite a lot of difference. Right? So here's one difference. Presumably the father um, or the parent has a better idea of what, they know more about what faulty wiring is. Right? So, um, and they might know about different ways in which uh, faulty wiring can cause fires. So they might discriminate between the possibility where it's faulty wiring, um, kind of that where the fuse uh, burned down or faulty wiring where the wire was frayed or whatever, however, ho however, whatever the ways are in which faulty wiring might lead you, might cause a fire, right? So presumably these are not epistemic possibilities that the child can discriminate between, right? Um, so there's one difference in that the, the parents' epistemic possibilities are much more fine-grained in certain ways than the child's are, right? Um, the other thing that might be different is the child might have epistemic, they might ha consider epistemic possibilities that the parent does not consider. So, for example, perhaps the child kind of has enough of a grip on faulty wiring to kind of discriminate between the hypothesis where it's something about the house that caused the fire, something about an electrical device, versus where someone set the house on fire intentionally. But the child might also think, well, faulty wiring might involve perhaps like a vacuum cleaner spontaneously combusting or like a, a laptop exploding. So these are all kind of epistemic possibilities that might be kind of part of the child's hypotheses um, that aren't part of the, of the parent's hypotheses, right? So it's kind of while, and, and so the child might kind of rule out also, so once, once the child learns that, um, it was faulty wiring that caused the fire. Um, they might rule out the hypothesis where it was a witch causing the fire or where it was uh, someone intentionally setting the house on fire. Um, 
just as, the, just as the parent is going to rule out some of the same hypotheses. But there's also quite a few hypotheses that the child is left with that the father isn't left with, and that the father is left with that the child isn't left with, right? Um, so in so far, so I think this is, what this shows is that just when we, when we attribute, when we like say, um, parent and child both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring, that's kind of, that's a very crude way of ascribing to someone to someone knowledge, right? And when we, can, when we examine the epistemic situation in more detail, um, there's actually quite a big epistemic asymmetry between the parent and the child. And moreover, that epistemic asymmetry um, seems to consist mostly of propositional knowledge. Like, the father knows that faulty wiring causes fire in these particular ways. The father knows that um, witches, there aren't any witches that could cause fires, right? The child doesn't know these things. Um, so there it seems like even though both, so it seems like saying that parent and child both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring is compatible with there being an epistemic asymmetry between those two agents. And moreover, this epistemic asymmetry is most naturally thought of as an asymmetry in knowledge. Okay, so... They, so they, do, they both know that the house burned down because of faulty wiring, but nevertheless, they differ in what they know. The parent knows more about what caused the fire than the child. Like that's a natural, that's a natural um, way of putting it. And this knowing more amounts to a difference in the content of what is known, right? There's just a lot more things about fires and houses and faulty wirings that the parent knows that the child doesn't know. So for this reason, I think, um, so I think once we're, once we're kind of clear on, on the fact that, um, the fact that both kind of have a particular propositional knowledge doesn't really know that their epistemic situation is the same or that there's, there isn't a good sense in which they have the same propositional knowledge um, if you examine their epistemic situation more closely. Um, that are, those are all reasons why we should reject, I think, premise two of the non-reductionist's argument. So, uh, in short, I think testimonial cases don't really show that we should um, reject the claim that um, knowing, is understanding, uh, knowing is sufficient for understanding. They just, these testimonial cases just merely bring out that where there's an epistemic asymmetry going in, kind of getting a, a, very, getting a very kind of soundbite bit of testimony uh, doesn't make that epistemic asymmetry go away. Right? It's just, it's reflected in the, in the uh, epistemic situation of those agents after the testimony as well. But there's nothing mysterious about this. There's no need to attribute any particular, like, novel, different cognitive state here. It really is just a matter of having more knowledge. Okay, so we should reject premise two. Okay, so that's, all that is um, just giving reason for why we should reject the, the argument of the non-reductionist. But why should we kind of accept non-reductionism? Uh, why should we accept reductionism? So what are some of the positive reasons why we should reject redu reductionism? And here um, I'm going to give you a number of considerations and also I think this will serve to sketch in a little bit more. Okay, so I think one thing that reductionism has really going for it is that it is parsimonious. Um, and in particular, uh, it doesn't really um, 
it doesn't require us to postulate any particular kind of novel cognitive attitude um, to a proposition such as grasping or some kind of novel cognitive attitude that's non-propositional in nature, such as kind of people sometimes, some people say like the, um, an ad, so that's supposed to be an attitude to a modal relationship as opposed to a proposition. Um, so um, we're just making do with things, with like entities or mental states that are in our philosophy of mind box already and that are there for good reason, right? Um, and moreover, I think that the notion of grasping that these, that, that non-reductionists appeal to when they kind of spell out their account, um, it's just incredibly obscure what that's supposed to be. Um, like, what is it, what is it to grasp a pro pro proposition as opposed to kind of merely uh, knowing that P, like what is it to grasp that P as opposed to just know that P? I just find it very obscure what that's supposed to be. And I don't think that um, the current non-reductionists in the literature at least give us much in terms of spelling this out. And I just want to point out that kind of spelling out what it is is a very substantive task, right? That's going to involve um, kind of telling us how this novel cognitive attitude, how that meshes with with other attitudes that we already have, with belief and knowledge, how it figures in agents' motivations. So, you know, it's not just, like, the talk of grasping is very suggestive, but there's a whole lot of work there to be done. Um, and I think, for one, I'm not really optimistic that the work can be done, but also I don't think there's much of a theoretical benefit in adding this kind of new mental state, given that we can account for all, everything we want to account for in terms of the mental states that we already have on the table. Okay, so parsimony is, I think, one big reason why we should be sticking with reductionism. Okay, here's another reason. So I think reductionism gives us a really, really nice account of kind of one feature of understanding that seems to be really central, and that's degrees of understanding. So one, uh, one kind of a striking feature of understanding is that agents differ in what they understand um, so, sorry, that agents differ in what they understand. They differ kind of in the, in, in, in the um, like, you know, you can understand better or understand worse. Um, understanding is something that kind of naturally lends itself to attributing degrees to. Okay, so if you're a non-reductionist, you're going to try to cash out these degrees of understanding in terms of degrees of grasping. So, again, I think that's very obscure, right? Um, but I think, the, in, in contrast, I think that the reductionist has a really nice story to tell. So they just need to observe that knowledge comes in different amounts, right? I can know more about a subject matter, or I can know more of an explanation that, than someone else. And so, um, according to reductionism, degrees of understanding can simply be cashed out in amounts of knowledge. So better understanding is simply a matter of knowing more. Um, and insofar as understanding comes in degrees, this is because what we know comes in different amounts, right? So, of course, one task now for the reductionist is going to make more precise what uh, talk of amounts of knowledge consists in. Um, but I think that there's kind of an independently motivated reason for why we should think that knowledge comes in different amounts. And we naturally, we naturally talk that way. Um, and I think there is, 
there, there is going to be, uh, I'm like more optimistic that there can be, that there is going to be a way of, of kind of cashing this out. There's a really nice paper by Nick Trainer which um, kind of makes some progress on how we should make that notion precise. But I think that notion is going to be kind of theoretically useful for independent reasons. Okay, so um, third consideration, just very quickly, um, I think reductionism is going to yield the result that testimony can yield understanding in some cases. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think very often when we don't understand something, we ask someone and then we come to understand ourselves. So um, I think that's a nice feature of reductionism. At the same time, um, the reductionism is going to um, tell a nice story as to how kind of epistemic asymmetries still may persist um, in, in testimonial cases. So I think all that um, is in favor of reductionism. Okay, and now the fourth point, and this is going to be my last point, I think the reductionism gives us a much better fit with the linguistic data. So I've pointed to one um, in the, in the, when I made the, the argument that knowledge is necessary for understanding. Okay, but um, a little bit, so more needs to be said here. Um, the reason why more needs to be said here because you might say, well, you've said that reductionism is a better fit with the linguistic data, but really, like, what about the following? Something like, consider the sentence, John knows why the house burned down, but he doesn't understand why the house burned down. Right? You might think, isn't that weird? That sounds perfectly fine. But if the reductionism claim is true, then we shouldn't expect it to sound fine because, um, because according to reductionism, knowledge is sufficient for understanding. Okay, so I think that reductionism actually has a good story to tell as to why these sentences do sound fine. And um, here's just quickly one way in which such a story might go. Um, I think in some context, to say that an agent knows why P can be ambiguous between two claims. It's ambiguous between the agent knows that some sentence P because of Q is true, or they might know that the sentence Q is the answer to the question why P, right? And um, a different kind of sentence, which is, um, the agent knows why P. So, for example, she knows that P because of Q. And I think these kinds of contexts arise particularly in those testimonial contexts at issue. And just in support of that, note that kind of, um, if you take the, the original sentence, John knows why the house burned down, but he doesn't understand why the house burned down, um, in those cases, we can draw the following inference. If John knows why the house burned down, but he doesn't understand why the house burned down, then there is something about the fire that John doesn't know. Like, that seems, um, that seems a fine thing to infer from kind of the sentence, um, the original sentence. Um, but of course, that is something that favors reductionism because that's exactly what reductionism says. It says, well, if there's a difference in understanding, um, or if it seems, or if the, it seems, um, if there's some kind of epistemic asymmetry, then what's missing is knowledge in that particular case. Um, the non-reductionist cannot give that explanation, because according to the non-reductionist, there can be a lack of understanding even when there is no lack of knowledge, right? Because understanding doesn't lack of understanding doesn't necessarily reflect the fact that the agent doesn't know something. It might just reflect that they lack this particular cognitive attitude of grasping to the particular um, thing that they know. So kind of even though these kind of sentences might look on the face of it 
like a problem for reductionism. I don't think they are. I think the reductionist both has a story to tell um, why, uh, why they sound better than um, the infelicitous sentence that we discussed when we talked about necessity claims. And the explanation that they gave is something that's not available um, to the non-reductionist. All right, so I'm going to stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you.